Hello, my name is Christian Shreve, and I've been asked to contribute my opinions on why and how I got involved in leading people in Utah to get their medical marijuana cards and what that struggle is about. And so I'm happy to do it. This story, ironically, begins several hundred years ago. And believe it or not, it begins in the land of Ireland, the land of fairy magic and the land of Halloween and the, the, the place where people believe the, the, the dead walk into our world once a year. And there are different things like banshees and kelpies and, and, and monsters, but there are also monsters. There are also people who did horrible things and in an area, a shire, an actual shire in Ireland called Warwickshire, my ancestors got together and began hunting down the people who would take from others to try to give them justice. And eventually they branched out. They went to Wales. They tracked people in England and even the highlands of Scotland. And as the centuries progressed, they made their way to America and continued. And they were called in to enforce laws and policies. And the Shire Reeves, who had been bounty hunters for centuries, were given a new name in the, the Americas. They're called sheriffs. And that was one story that actually links to you and your purpose in listening to this. Another was a man named Henry Miller Shreve. Now, Henry Miller had decided that he was going to live where the adventure in the country was happening on the rivers, where people were using riverboats to travel upstream and downstream, and they could move massive amounts of merchandise compared to what they could do on little roads. And it was a terribly exciting time, except there was a problem. There were agents of tyranny. They were trying to monopolize the rivers themselves. They were trying to, the fur companies, the, the business interests, they were deciding who and who couldn't get on and off these boats and who and who could, who and who couldn't do business on the rivers. And so Henry Miller decided that this was unjust. So he changed things. He began battling them. He began letting people do business that weren't authorized or part of the, the, the big, for, for what it was then, the big corporations. And sometimes he would get arrested, but he would be broken out, broken out by the, by the natives and the people who had helped him. And he turned his paddle wheel sideways so he could get really close. And he would let women travel without escorts of men. And he would let the native, the native population, the Indians there, they could do what they wanted. They could go back and forth wherever they wanted. And, and the the escaped slaves, and those were recognized as free slaves, they could do what they wanted to do on this ship. And so he took this band of people that were basically separated by culture and by time and by place and put them together and let them live. And they would go together on his paddle, on, on his riverboat, and they would go in and out where places had never seen them before. And he named 
after this group had done this, he named his ship Enterprise. These were stories about, about my family and about their quest for justice. Now, I'm the son of a surgeon who, while growing up as a little boy, would see people coming back from World War II and they had lost their, their feet, they'd lost their legs, their ability to walk. Now, sometimes it was from actual battle. Sometimes it was just from not having the resources to take care of injuries or to have their, their feet rot away and trench rot and, and, and gangrene and just diseases. And he determined when he became a man to give these people a measure of freedom and he helped develop the orthotics movement and help people so that they, they could keep their feet. They was part of that wave of, of doctors that developed tourniquet systems so they could work with nerves within the, within the feet, the, the area of the body that has more bones than any others. And he wanted to give these people a measure of freedom. And he did. In fact, even today, though he's retired, he has means and measures where he can tape the foot into position and have it reset itself and heal itself and align itself without surgery. Now, the big companies, the big pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, they want to cut surgery first, but he didn't see that that was the just thing to do. So he didn't handle it that way. He cut when he needed to cut and he took other measures because he had taken an oath, the Hippocratic oath, and he stood by that. So I'm, I'm his son. But the conversation I think that most influences why you're listening to me now was a conversation that I had with my grandfather. Now my grandfather was a, a he'd started out as a country attorney and then he became famous for what he was doing. And, and he, he served in the House of Representatives in North Carolina for many years. Uh, and he represented both the white and black community during the turbulent Southern time in the 60s. And somehow he managed to unite both sides together in what he was doing and they supported him. And I remember he was, he was an old man and I was still a boy and I didn't understand. And I, he was talking, he'd talked to me about the constitution and he talked to me about the law and he talked to me about freedoms and, and it, I could look outside and it didn't look like what I was seeing on TV and what I was reading fit that. And, and he said to me, Chris, I want to make it very, very clear. He said, our law and our constitution does not ensure justice. What it does is give justice a chance, and that chance must be fought for. And so I'm, I'm from that lineage, and I'm from that, that heritage. And my parents moved after uh, my dad exited the Army during the Vietnam era um, as a doctor. My parents moved to Utah and they wanted a different way of educating, of, of having education for their child. And people were trying out different ways to educate the children. And they, they had me take a series of tests and I qualified for a charter program that's now known as Montessori. And so we'd go there and I'd appear on TV and then I'd go home and watch myself on TV. And I thought maybe every kid did that. But at the time, the Montessori program was they would find something you were interested in, like say it was reading or, or blocks or basic math, and you could run with it and you could, you could just excel at it. And I really thrived in that kind of an environment, although I had a, a, a weakness that 
that had yet to manifest itself. And that was, I had a problem with my pancreas. I was hypoglycemic, the opposite of diabetes. And I had low blood sugar. And the effect of that made itself really, really apparent when they moved me to, instead of having me to go continue with a school that, that furthered that kind of mindset, as the Montessori program did, they put me in public school where I would be, I remember in, in, in first grade trying to, to finish a paper and they say, stop. I'm, well, I'm not done. I'm going to keep going until I get it done. I have to do it right. Or you got eight wrong on this test. And I'm like, well, I'll fix those and turn those back in. No, I'm sorry. This is where you stay. And it was more about uh, social conditioning. And I really didn't fit there. And along with the with that, the hypoglycemia creates, now people know about it. It creates mood instability. Uh, if you, you Your body craves sugar like crazy, but it, but it makes you feel almost inebriated before it makes you feel pretty sick. You can be shaky and very, very weak. And so that's what I had. And my parents decided that they would they would take me to the local uh, the local psychiatric and, and psychological representatives. And at nine, I started um, I, I had my first dealer. I started taking these drugs. They were calling them meds. They were calling them meds. I remember the first day that at night I took one. I got up the next morning. I walked in the other room. I came back to go to the rest from going to the restroom and I collapsed on the ground. Well, the next few years were pretty much a, a, a haze of different drugs. And I remember having my fourth and fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Lindsley, pull me, up, pull me aside one day and she pulled out my, my paperwork and, and, and my handwriting. And she said, this is almost illegible. You were doing much better. What is going on? Why, why is your skill set deteriorating? And... I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. And then I got more of an insight into it when I was 13 years old and our, our, our neighbor, a lovely lady named Mrs. Detweiler was talking to my mother and I, and I was standing or I was sitting on the steps in our front yard and I pulled out the pills I was to take. And she looked at them and she said, you take those. And I said, yes. And she said, what's that one? And I said, that's Xanax. And she said, okay, that's a downer. What's that one? Well, it's Dexatrim diet pills. And she looked up at my mom with an expression of, of, of a little bit of horror and a significant amount of anger. And I looked up at my mother, not knowing anything was wrong. And there was embarrassment on her face and there was shame on her face. And that's when I had some idea about the effect that these drugs were having on me, these meds, excuse me. Now in my culture, where I'd been raised, you they, they separate them. These are good drugs. These are, are tax drugs. These fit within the law. These are prescribed by a doctor. These are good. These are bad drugs. People do these by themselves. And, and they're different. And you can have as many drugs as you want, but they have to be the authorized kind. And so that's what I grew up, grew up with. And so I spent the better part of my older childhood and most of my adolescence stoned. Now, I don't say high. High means feeling good, stoned. I was altered. They, every few years, every about two years, um, there was a hot new trend in the psychiatric and psychological pharmaceutical 
uh, business. They would come up with a new trend. And whatever it was that they were coming up with, I had it. And they were throwing pills at me like they were flipping them out of a Pez dispenser. And so as I was standing there trying to learn school, trying to fit in, I was I was simultaneously at the same time detoxing from certain drugs where I probably should have been in a detox unit trying to sweat them out. But I'm, I'm trying to learn as I'm detoxing and then I'm hypoglycemic and I'm dealing with that and I don't know what that is and nobody's testing me for it. And then I'm on a new drug. So at the same time I'm detoxing, I'm on a new drug and I'm having hypoglycemic and I'm, I'm just a mess. Um, then fast forward to, to uh, when I'm 16 and I'm, I'm performing again. I've been a, a professional performer uh, before, but I'm, I'm 16 and I'm performing. We In Utah, I have something called the Delta Center now, but it used to be called the Salt Palace. And there was a, a, a drug conference there for high school youth. And I was, I was hanging out there and I was one of the performers and I, I was dealing, I, I had, I had acquaintances with people who had, who uh, through their lives had, had been the children of alcoholics or drug addicts. And, and a number of these people actually themselves had been, or were currently addicts. They knew all about it. And I thought I was above them because I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't going to take drugs. I had meds. They took drugs. I was over here. They were over there and they tolerated me. And I didn't realize how generous they were, but I get it now. And between my performances, uh, a group of, of kids came in and they were from the D.A.R.E. program. And the D.A.R.E. program was something that was put together by the first lady at the time, Nancy Reagan. And here were these kids and they looked so happy and and so bright and chipper and they were they looked innocent and they were singing songs about being drug free and i remember looking at as they're performing this i'm looking over at the at the kids who actually had experience with these substances and they didn't look impressed at all and i went over and talked to some of these kids after their performance and i said well that, that was a lovely song and dance do you have any experience with drugs? Oh, we would never do that. We would never do that. That's not us. We're here to, to pull these, these troubled, misguided youth from, from the fire. And then I talked to the people who actually had drug experience, and they said, these, these kids who just performed, not only do they, they not know what they're talking about, they don't know what they don't know, but they sure have a lot of attitude about it. And that kind of rolled in my head around for a while. But after I graduated high school, things got very intense on this front. You see, my cultural upbringing was that I was on high moral ground. I'd been told what to think. I'd been told what to say. I'd been told what to feel. And I'd bought into that. And I had two friends who knew what I knew, but they knew other things as well. And when I tried to impose myself with, I, I felt I had good intentions, but I had, I tried to impose my beliefs upon these people. I had a small group of, of very close friends and I lost two of them and I was devastated. I don't know how many of you have ever thought that you're building a life with a certain group of people and then either you move or, or it just falls apart. I don't know if you if if you can relate. Some of you, I'm I'm sure, can relate to that feeling in your gut, the the the, 
where, where grief is starting to pick up and run over the top of you, where somebody who's been by you or you were by them and all of a sudden that door is closed permanently. Well, that's what I had. That's what I had. And they left me with a, with a message that I'd heard before said about somebody else. You do not know what you are talking about and you do not know what you don't know. And we're just not going to put up with it. And I walked around in a haze of grief for, for quite a while. Then I had a friend who decided to give me a chance. He would save me. He would give me a chance. His name was Sean. I can never pay him back. I can never pay his mother back. My, my good friend Sean died. But I remember him calling me, and, and, and I, I was just beside myself. And he put me through questions like this. He said, he said, why, why should I help you? I mean, as a friend, he could have just said, I'll listen to you and support you. But he said, but I wanted more. He knew about the things I didn't, and I wanted more. And he said, why should I help you? And I said, so I can know what I don't know. And he said, why? And I said, so I can get my friends back. And he said, why do you want those friends back? And I said, so I'm not alone. He said, why is that important? I said, because I'm the one who messed up. He said, how? I said, I said things I believed based on cultural input instead of research. I don't know what I'm talking about. And he said, why? And I said, because I have been living in a bubble of ignorance. He said, why? I said, I've been smarmy. I've been critical. And I've been hypercritical hypocritical. And he said, why? And I said, because I don't know what I don't know, but I felt I should talk anyway. And he said, okay, okay, I'm going to help you. This began the quest that led me to you. I began, I'd, I'd been a writer and I began in earnest learning journalistic techniques. I began finding how to check information, how to verify it. I learned to tell if things were fake just simply because they fed, fed it into a category called fallacies, which might as well be falsities, logical fallacies. I began to check sources. I began to learn how to learn and learn how to fix what I didn't know by doing actual research. I had made truth claims my whole life about what I knew was true based only on belief. And that, for someone who's studying in earnest, does not qualify. It does not pass a test for critical thinking, but I had done it anyway. And my quest was one of the main ones. Does marijuana help or hurt people? I had been told a number of things. I had bought them because I had 
believed in the authority of people around me who generally, apparently, didn't know any more than I did. And once I began studying, knew less. Because nothing I had heard held up to scrutiny. I'd been told marijuana was a gateway drug. Was there any, any independent research to back that up? No. I had been told that it was physically addictive. Did that stand up? the measure uh, to meet its burden of proof. No. I had been told it was immoral. Did that hold up? No. And I had been told and taught that it was bad to feel good. And what I learned was that the only crime of this, the only crime for people using marijuana was that it was listed as a crime. Well, I thought if it doesn't do any harm, if it's not technically bad, does it do any good? Now, the research isn't as, is, as well documented as it is now in America. But the answer was yes, if you have anxiety, physical or mental distress or pain, epilepsy, cancer, uh, the list goes on and on. And also for those people who do not want the side effects of what the prescription drug, drug industry is giving them. And so I, armed with actual information, I've studied both sides and independently. Now it was time to discuss the matter with the people in my life with whom I had shared opinions, from whom I had learned opinions and I went to my culture and my family with this information and I said when we talk about marijuana where and how did you qualify your information friends I don't know if you have ever taken information that you had been given and made the decision to ask questions. But for some of you, you know that there can be the heaviest of prices. And what I learned was that questions can equal evictions. There is a verification penalty for doing independent research about what you were taught. At least there was around where I was. And in fact, I have someone very close to me and she began taking what she had been taught about her life and her culture. And she did independent research, the type that somebody would do if they were publishing an article in the New York Times and had to have the facts checked and straight. And when she announced her findings, her children were stolen from her, taken across the country and stashed, and her own family held her kids in hiding from her because she had done enough research to change her mind. So what we came up with were basically, I was being fed the, the marijuana dogma, but I was being told that 
you have to be aware that you are under threat. There are people with guns who will take your freedom, who will take your money, who will take your status for being involved in this. That they could prove. That the people around me could verify. They couldn't prove it was wrong. They didn't have anything to... to, uh, They weren't willing to investigate. They didn't have anything to go against what I said. But they could say, what you can do is you can be hurt. You can be imprisoned, maybe killed. And so my culture then at the end said, we're going to stand with what we've been taught that, that we can we can stand behind no matter what you've said. And that is, we are going to follow the law. And I thought about that. And I said, yes, the law. I'm going to research that law. And I checked into it. And what has followed has been decades of trying to raise awareness and try not to go to prison, to try to help people. I recognized that there were people who wanted medical marijuana as medicine, to feel good emotionally, to feel good physically, just to feel better. And I I learned that they had to sometimes, to get these, they had to go where there were dangerous people who dealt with dangerous drugs. And because of this system of enforcement, sometimes they had to put themselves in bad positions with real dangerous folks to get what they ethically were entitled to have. And so as I researched the laws, I followed the money back. And I followed the place back to where at one point I lived, which is Draper, Utah. Draper, Utah. Sounds like a a fairly innocuous name, but it isn't. You talk about drugs. You talk about dangerous drugs, antidepressants. You talk about benzos. You talk about opioids. Draper, Utah was listed as the antidepressant capital of the world, where they were just handing the things out. They they all but just dumped, dumped them right in the people's water supply. In fact, Draper was known to be to those drugs, what Columbia was to cocaine. You can do your own research. I'd encourage it. And then you, you do more investigation, or at least I did. Try this, folks. Have a, have a conversation with an industry insider who explains the bottom line for you. You know the bottom line? Which says we cannot have legal marijuana because it's going to affect the bottom lines of the oncology department. If people are keeping on weight... If they're being healthier longer, are they going to want those poisons, those chemotherapies and things in their body? There's less money there. How about the pharmaceutical cartels? They're not going to want to give up their revenue. This would be a big hit. Legal marijuana would be a big hit to them. And the industrial prison complex. We, we need to keep people in there. I mean, they, there's no crime that they, they there's no victim to, to their, to their crimes. But, you know, we make money off, off, off the taxpayer dole just to keep these people in here. That's a hard conversation to have. And so I want to ask you, have you ever watched someone wither away? 
Have you watched them get weaker and weaker and weaker and watched their will interfered with by their health and watched them in pain? And if you haven't, maybe you've had a family member who knows somebody who has, who can tell you the worst stories. And I spent decades looking at these people, knowing that there are some of them who could instantly have a better quality of life and maybe a prolonged quality of life. People with asthma, epilepsy, PTSD, ADHD. Um, but who's standing in their way? Who's standing in their way? When they say faceless corporations, that's not what I think of. I think of the people who stand behind them. The people who do not care about you and your families. The people who think you're garbage. The think people who think you're crud, who do not care at all about the suffering that you and your family have gone through and the people that you know and the people in your neighborhood and the people in your area, they do not know. And so there has been long suffering because these people will hurt you and your family so that they can keep an extra digit on their paychecks. And we are long suffering, but there have been victories. I'm going to share them with you. I'm going to share you, share with you how we intend to have a few of our own. Welcome back. This is green man's burden. Part two of episode one. If you haven't listened to the first part, I recommend you do so. It explains why we've taken this course of action, why we've stepped out to assist people in this difficult time. Who's trying to help you? Who's trying to hurt you? How to tell the difference? And ultimately, how to get what's best for you and your family's health. We've talked about justice. We've talked about my history. We've talked about culture. We've talked about vested interests who would have you suffer for their paycheck rather than have you healthy or healthier. We have long suffered, but there have been victories. Someone close to me has lived a life of service where for a number of years, his whole profession was assisting the handicapped some profoundly physical and emotionally handicapped. And he developed a condition within his bowels that was not only potentially life-threatening, it was extraordinarily painful. And those of you who have, who have had some experience with almost unimaginable pain know that beyond the toll it takes just on your nerves, there's the inability to rest, the inability to, to, to function. And after a while, it can begin to affect your mind. This is the kind of pain I'm talking about. If you've ever experienced that, 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 that knots you up, that folds you over, this is what this young man was dealing with. And someone had mercy on him and brought to him some marijuana for medical use. And he used it. And Within a few minutes, he was just 
sobbing. And the, the young lady who brought it to him said, what, what's wrong now? And he said, I'm so relieved. I am out of pain. He was able to unclench. He was able to relax. He was able to sleep. Another example is I, I have a, a, a friend, his leg was crushed. Biggest bone in his leg, his femur was crushed. He spent two years learning to walk again. He uses medical marijuana to function, to work, to walk. Young lady had her, beautiful young lady, I know she, she had her skull basically pieced together and reshaped and formed after an accident, an intense, severe brain injury. She uses medical marijuana to finish school, to function, to function in now in her career. And I have a, someone close to me with asthma, someone else with epilepsy. Those of us who've been around medical marijuana, we all have our stories of who this has helped. And yet, around us culturally, the battle rages, the band plays on. But there have been changes, as you may know. It began some years ago, where there were optimistic whispers to the underground. One came from a doctor that I know now, and he had attended a medical conference. Now, the medical conferences are, by and large, financed by the big pharmaceutical cartels. But he went there and they were talking about the potential of medical marijuana becoming a mainstream accessibility. And that brought some people to talk about it. One of the people was a police officer. And this man stood up. They had him appear in front of a room full of doctors. And he gave the party line. Um, it is a gateway drug. Uh, it's evil. Um, you will grow horns, your children will become a deviant, you'll become a heroin addict, and, and just, just the type of thing that they have been instructed to say and, and have been deceived to believe. And so then he sat down and someone else stood up, a small woman with a large presence. She walked up I can't remember the exact place she was from as a researcher and a doctor. I think it's Johns Hopkins, but I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember. And she said, everything, everything that man just told you is wrong. The medicinal properties of marijuana have been investigated thoroughly. We know what it does. We know what it doesn't how it works in the body and affects the body. The conclusions are clear and overwhelming. Everything that police officer just said is wrong. And this doctor told me you could hear a pin drop. And she continued with a message like this. She addressed them all, Utah doctors, you've been deceived. It's time for you to become educated on fact versus fantasy and learn what you need to know to best serve your patients in the coming years. She said this at a convention sponsored by a major drug cartel that competes with this industry. 
Then a few years later, a major political player had a televised interrogation with a federal drug thug and held his feet to the fire, saying he was enforcing that that man and his organization, the drug enforcement agencies, were enforcing marijuana as a dreaded Schedule One substance, which means it's it has no medicinal value. It's worse than than methamphetamines, cocaine, heroin, and this this. This political representative was saying this and then and then pointing to the man and saying the ev- all the evidence is pointing to the contrary. And finally, the enforcer suggested the meeting be postponed so they could talk one on one. It was a telling moment in the fight for justice. And to his credit, this politician refused and had it out with him in front of the U.S. political world. Politicians heard it. More importantly, some of their constituents heard it. The public wanted change. And change is what they got. Voters throughout the country where medical marijuana or even recreational marijuana have been added to the ballots, they've showed up in droves. They showed up in, in millions to approve medical marijuana all over the country. States began to implement the will of the people. And the Fed said, not so fast. We're not going to authorize the American citizenry to make their own decisions. The biggest lobby in the country, Big Pharma, our bosses say no. Plus, we would lose income on psychiatric and pain drugs. We'd lose the secondary market where we prescribe more drugs to combat the side effects from the first drugs we give them. And then there's the loss of revenue for military operations. We finance on the citizen's tax dollar to fight the unincorporated cartels, mostly from South America. And on top of that, the money we make housing criminals who have no victims and the cost we've sunk into telling people what to think. This is not something we're willing to turn our backs on. On the other side of this, the states quickly found marijuana to be a very healthy cash crop for taxes. People were happy. None of the areas transitioned into these evil drug dens. So there's a standoff. On one side, the federal government, Big Pharma, their partners, along with the uneducated, the indoctrinated, and the deceived. On the other, the fate of the idea of the will of the people. May it stand or may it fall. Reminds me of a saying, once there was a dream that was Rome. At stake in this battle, the health of the U.S. public. And make no mistake, this is a test of the real validity and credibility of this country's election process. And so now, the eyes of the nation turn to the civil rights battleground of Utah to see the fate of 21st century American justice. Transformation is upon us. The weary pioneers of medical justice must now continue to emerge from the shadows with their hands out, lifting the affirmed, the lamed, the troubled into a bright new day. We must remain on constant watch for bureaucratic trickle-down tyranny It is the time for us to finish the war we've started. 
Folks, we cannot give peace a chance. But standing together in the millions, as we do now, we feed a real chance to justice against the pitiless folk who believe their only way to stand in the light is to hold fast to the dark and most vulnerable among them. These are the brutal, the lost, the dangerous. For those seeking guidance and directions, we have prepared a path. And I am here to walk it with you until the end. Let's move.